the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 22 of Magic Markets. As ever, it's the finance ghost joined by Mohamed Nala of MoKnows.com all the way from Canada. He's wearing his blue sweater tonight as opposed to his blue hoodie for those who who remember those references from uh, some of our earlier shows because it's snowing again, isn't it, Mo? Yeah, ghost. Always great to be on the show. (laughs) Weird weather. I mean, we thought we were definitely going into spring and then someone broke the thermostat and overnight we had a, a bucket load of snow. So there's now snow lying all over again. Uh, but apparently we're back up to 18 degrees by the end of the week. So let's see how it goes. I don't know what's worse to be hot or cold in, in Ramadan and you haven't eaten or, or drunk anything for hours. So you've got a sunny disposition about you for a man who's very thirsty. So thank you for nonetheless doing this uh, essentially during your fasting hours. Uh, Mo, we were just talking absolute nonsense before the show, as we usually do, about how statistically significant you are, for those who, who don't haven't realized that already. One of the things being that uh, you were one of the first Indian families on the West Strand. But the other one, which is uh, more in line with what we're going to talk about tonight, is that you were spotted by the Google car and uh, immortalized on Google Street View, uh, walking alongside your older place of work, Nedbank, which may or may not be where you and I met. We won't give too much away. And uh, that's an exciting thing. And we're talking about banking tonight while you were strolling through the streets of Santon as the Wolf of Maud Street, weren't you? The Wolf of Maud Street, indeed. Um, yeah, Google's got this cool new function, which, which I've just discovered. I think they've done it fairly recently, where if you go into Street View, it doesn't work on your phone. It only works on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a desktop or, or whatever. But if you go into Street View, you drop the little man into Street View, and then you can select the times or the year for a particular Street View picture. And so it shows you this evolution as you go along. So it's quite fascinating because, again, at that time, you know, Santon was still developing. Village Walk was still there. I mean, that's been smashed down. Nedbank's second phase was still being built. Uh, and, yeah, you might not recognize me because I still had hair back then. I was about uh, to ask, yeah. how, how far back on Street View will people need to go to find a picture of you with hair? That feels like the advent of the smartphone. Must be more or less, eh? Hey? 2007. 2009. It's not that bad. 2009. <laughs> so you must have been buying something quite fattening to make you feel better about working in banking around that time. Those were, those were dark times. Uh, it reminds me of a story someone once told me. They went and watched uh, South Africa play in Australia cricket, and I think it was around the time of the GFC when Siddle was still uh, playing for Australia and one of the great sledging chants, you know, from that that, that dicey stand at the Wonders where you would never take your underage child was to chant that uh, Siddle is a banker and everyone can work out from there what that, what that was almost a play on words for. But that was, uh, <laughs> the global financial crisis was not a happy time for banking and the decade that came after that hasn't really been a happy time for banking. And Mo, that's what we're going to talk about tonight is banking as a whole. We've both worked in the industry and I think we'll have some interesting insights to share. And and really the, the reason for that on the show tonight is we've seen some really cool results out of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. 
And in absolute contrast, we've seen some really tough results out of Credit Suisse on the wrong side of a couple of horrible trades. Pretty surprising negative results out of Morgan Stanley, again, because of Bill Huan and friends, uh, who we discussed on, a, on an episode a couple of shows ago. So, Mo, where should we, where should we start with this? I think banking is the dark arts for, for a lot of people. Um, maybe we should just give a lay of the land of how these banks actually operate and just broadly, you know, what is an investment bank? I think that's the term that people really get excited by. Yeah, so Ghost, I mean, first and foremost, banks have evolved. So I think from the time we're just speaking about, you know, financial crisis, uh, there was a big regulatory response from, uh, you know, uh, towards the banking sector to ensure that they shored up their capital reserves. Uh, we, we remember we saw the whole too big to fail. And, and whilst Lehman Brothers was let go, a lot of these other banks were basically shored up. They shored up their balance sheets and they've survived the last decade and a bit uh, relatively okay. I mean, it, it hasn't been a terrible decade. We've actually seen the stocks recover quite nicely. Uh, but bear in mind that a lot of these banks have transitioned. Some that were you know, solely retail banks have now spawned small investment banking operations. And some that were true cut and dried investment banks like Goldman Sachs spawned some retail operations over the course of the last decade. And as it's gone along, some have trimmed those down, some have spun it out. But by and large, we now have these banks. Let's focus on the second part of your question, which was the whole investment banking side, because I think that's where a lot of the, the fireworks and the most recent results have come from, is that Investment banking essentially would house most of your commercial operations of the bank. Your trading operations would sit in your investment bank. It's where a lot of your M&A, that's mergers and acquisitions, activity, advisory work would come out of that side of the bank. And that's what makes up the investment bank uh, as a whole. Uh, it's where there's generally a lot of fee revenue. There's also a lot of uh, balance sheet revenue that comes through. And then remember, trading businesses are based on volatility, on volume. And this has really been, I guess, the perfect year over the course of the last year post-pandemic for volatility in markets. We've seen volatility in bond markets. We've seen volatility in equity markets. We've seen some of these banks even start to say, and most notably JP Morgan, that initially uh, Jamie Dimon came out and said, oh, you know, Bitcoin's terrible, you know, it's a farce, and now doing a full 180 and saying we're getting involved in Bitcoin. Uh, this just shows you how these machines, these engines have evolved and they're looking to, and this is an old investment banking term, they're looking to get every clip on the deal ticket. And that's really what investment banks yeah, are about. There's so much we can talk about in this space. And one thing I do want to clarify is, you know, my statement that the last decade hasn't been great for banking. It's in relative terms, because as you point out, they did recover. But relative to what's happening in big tech, which has kind of become the really sexy industry, the one that's attracting a lot of the best graduates in the States, they all want to go work in San Francisco. They don't necessarily all want to go work on Wall Street. But there's definitely been a renewed interest among retail traders in the last sort of year. I mean, for me, it's just fantastic. I speak to... You know, my cousin who's barely finished school and he, he he's watching the markets all the time. And it's just, it's great. You know, he wants to go and study um, sort of a BCom investment management route and, and CFA and, and get into finance. So maybe finance is making a bit of a comeback. But, you know, to get back to banking, yeah, there's so many different models. There's so many different ways that they try to actually make money going into more retail banking. Then there's the decision of whether or not you go for high net worth individuals, you know, the way Investec would do it, or a Goldman Sachs, or are you going to be a broad play retail bank, which is kind of where the likes of Nedbank, ABSA, FNB play. And then Capitec has, has really done well in South Africa by being quite focused. You know, and that's just on retail banking. That's before we get into stuff like the bank assurance model, which is 
basically selling insurance products into banking clients ultimately. I guess that's a little bit of what Discovery is, or Discovery is actually going the other way, really, trying to sell banking products into an insurance model. So, you know, this world of financial services is incredibly interesting and can be exceptionally profitable. I mean, I had a look at the return on equity numbers for Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan in these latest quarterly results, and they are solid. They really are. So in a world of tech companies that many of which are not even making profits yet, um, what sort of banking exposure have you got in your portfolio? Are you happy to hold some of these? Yeah, I think, you know, you'll pardon the pun, but for me, banks in a portfolio are a banker. You know, it's uh, banks, my view at least, I guess, wherever you go, tend to be a very similar business model. Maybe I have a, an affinity for it because I come from that industry. Uh, I'd like to think I understand banking. And in that context, if you look at banking, there are obviously regional differences. So for example, if you're a set of banks that have a very specific geographic focus, South Africa, a good case in point, South African banks are predominantly focused on the South African market. Some of them have Africa operations, but it is a play on the South African economy. Uh, but if you take that business model and you come out to Canada, for example, you're going to find a very similar business model, not exactly the same, but it's still an oligopolistic market up here, and there are four or five big banks here. And interestingly enough, if you actually look at that, that then becomes a play on the Canadian economy. When you move out to some of your global players, the likes of a Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Citi, you know, then you start, the nuances start to become a lot more important. It's then nuance around what are your geographic exposures? Because, for example, if you're heavily exposed to Asia or if you're heavily exposed to a specific economic sector like coal, for example, those sensitivities start to come into play and lead to some differentiation between the various banks. I like the banks generally because they tend to pay reasonably good dividends and consistent dividends over a long period of time. It's not to say that they're not prone to downside risk in markets. I mean, we saw this in the global financial crisis. They were definitely at the receiving end of that. So it's not to say it's a foolproof business model. But for me, banks are there as a cash generative business that doesn't necessarily have to give you the shoot the lights out growth that you're getting, but will be a business that you can ride through the cycle. More by luck than design, the two investment banks internationally that I hold are Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. So <laughs> I'm pretty happy about that. That's been okay in the context of the last quarter. Um, locally, I bought some Standard Bank last year and, and then got out of it at some point. Uh, I've always been a bit bearish on on Capitex valuation. And maybe we can talk about that a bit. And then I'd like to get a little bit more into, you know, where it goes wrong for banking. So, you know, I really enjoy following Capital Sigma on Twitter. And, and they often post a lot of great charts about how the bank valuations kind of, when they diverge, you can almost use that as a good trigger for getting back into whichever one has diverged to the downside, because the big banks do move together. So, you know, as much as, as for example, I think Nedbank strategically, you know, needs to think about how they're doing their retail banking. The reality is the share price, I think year to date is doing really well based on the chart I saw the other day. Some of the other stuff like Standard Bank hasn't been so great. Uh, Capitec, I just want to talk about that valuation. I mean, I've written about it before, but one of the metrics that gets used in value in banks is price to book ratio. And the reason for that is unlike many other sectors, the book rate or, or the, the net book value of a bank is actually very close to the market value of its assets and liabilities because the accounting rules make banks fair value most of what's on the balance sheet. It's not a factory with a machine they bought 25 years ago that's fully depreciated. So price to book is actually quite a cool way to value banks and certainly to compare them to each other. And the banks, you know, Nedbank, ABSA, they typically trade at like discount to book value. 
Um, First Train has historically been at a nice premium to book value because they do a lot of innovative stuff for clients and, or certainly perceived to be that way and generate a lot of non-interest revenue, NIR. You'll remember that term from our banking days. And that's a great way of making money not off your assets. That's the whole idea there is you're not using assets to generate non-interest revenue. That's like fee income as opposed to interest income. So when you're doing more of that, then it's a very effective use of your book. And so obviously you'll trade at a premium to book. Anyway, that brings me to Capitec, which is trading at multiple times its book value. And what are people pricing in there? Well, they're pricing in growth. So they're pricing in incredibly strong growth in Capitec. But for me, it's kind of got that Netflix smell to it of if it goes well, you're paying for it already. And if it doesn't really go well, then you've kind of overpaid. So, you know, jury's still out on that. I mean, Capitec is one of probably the only great success stories to come from the Altex onto the main board of the JSC. No one's disputing that it's a great business. But from an investment perspective, that's one that I've actively avoided, to be honest. Yeah, I, I remember Capitec from, from way back in the day. I, I remember uh, being on CNBC with, with Rian Stassen and, and raising some of my concerns at the time because the growth was exponential. Uh, what was interesting at the time is that Capitec was hedging out its interest rate risk completely and we were in a very different interest rate kind of cycle back then as we are, as we are now. But these fears around it have been there for, for some time. And if you were bearish on Capitec, it would have been an expensive mistake not held in the portfolio over that extended period of time. That said, your, your Netflix analogy uh, is spot on. We know longer term, the, the performance of your investment is very much related to the price that you're paying for it. Uh, at some point in time, how richly is that growth priced into the stock uh, and how much growth is actually left in the markets that they operate in. One last dimension there as well is that I think early days, one of the, the competitive advantages for a player like Capitec is they were coming into this market with a fresh set of eyes. They didn't have the legacy systems that the big four banks had at that point in time, and it made them very nimble. I think they were one of the first banks to come up with, with biometric validation. So they would check your identity using biometrics, which was fascinating. And those kind of technological advances uh, or advantages is what gave them the growth curve uh, over and above the cost-heavy, big, fat, lazy banks, if you want to call it that, you know, the established order. Um, however, at some point in time, Capitec becomes part of the established order and there are newer, more nimble players that enter into the market space. Maybe in banking, it's a little bit slower because it's a heavily regulated industry, not that easy to get a banking license. But yeah, I must say that when there's these massive dislocations, for example, you're mentioning Standard Bank, I think they're down on a year-to-date basis versus their peers. I think Nedbank's the outperformer, the rest are kind of flat. And when you get those dislocations, because their price to books are more or less in the same range, you can also look at PE ratios if you really want to, they're more or less in the same range. It's a nice way to do a relative trade in the portfolios. You buy the ones that you think are better value, you sell the ones that you think are maybe not better value. What has hurt the banking sector in South Africa, I guess, relative to the global banking sector is that there were quite, I think two of them, three of them actually suspended their dividends last year uh, during the pandemic. And remember, when you're banking on a dividend yield of 4 or 5%, uh, that becomes a substantial portion of your returns. So I think on that basis, it was maybe prudent from the banks to try and defend their balance sheets. But from an investor standpoint, investors like to buy you given some certainty. And I think the international banks have maintained most of their dividends and certainly on an earnings basis, uh, actually look a little bit more attractive than some of the South African banks right now. 
And something in my portfolio that has really been a struggle for me is uh, maybe I'm too principled, but I try and avoid these kind of momentum trades where people are just chasing something because it's hot. Because I always think to myself, I want to buy this and I want to hold it for a really long time as opposed to buy it and then get out a month later and hope that I'm not holding the bag. I probably need to have a different portfolio for that purpose and then I can enjoy the, the fruits of stuff like Tesla and Capitec that I think are, are just way too expensive, honestly. Just talking about how it goes wrong for banks. So... I mean, they make money off assets, right? And if you have a look at a bank's financial statements, you will see a monumental pile of assets. And, you know, out the other end pops a relatively small profit number if you look at it relative to the value of assets. Now, the problem, in my view at least, for banks or the risk is that when something goes wrong, it goes wrong at an asset level. So either it's a bad loan or, you know, it's exposure to a hedge fund that they've taken some collateral on or whatever the case may be, uh, Nedbank's taken a lot of pain in the property sector lately. Whatever that issue is that is hurting the banks, and Greensill is a great international example, it's going to happen on an asset number, but it's going to hit the profit line in the form of an impairment. If you're only generating, you know, and I'm going to pluck some numbers out of the air here, but 3% or 5% return on assets, for example, and that asset takes a serious impairment, it absolutely smashes your profitability and that is where it can go so wrong for banks and where you know in your portfolio you've got to be aware of the risks and unfortunately because the banks are doing so many complicated things it can happen anywhere in 2008 2009 it happened in collateralized home loans but it didn't do anything like that for you know bull Juan and friends that happened in the prime broking division that's where the break came so this stuff happens all over the bank that's the problem yeah, there was there was this old joke, and I, th I think most investment bankers will, will will share the sentiment: is that it doesn't matter how good a year you've had and how much money you've made, as you're approaching bonus date, some other person in the bank is going to find a way to blow a hole in your bonus pool, <laughs> and and that's really that's really the nature of it: is that the blow up can come from your balance sheet. Uh, as you say, you know, an asset on a bank's balance sheet is is the loans that they're giving out to people for those that aren't familiar with how this kind of ties in with accounting convention. Um, so it could happen there. It could happen in your private equity space. It could happen in your trading business. So I think given the complexities and the various avenues through which these banks, uh, you know, operate gives you many points of risk. It also explains why banks by definition, need to be pretty risk averse. They need to be quite smart around the types of risks that they put onto the balance sheet, the kind of concentration risks that they have. And again, you know, we've seen some lapses in the past and they inevitably break down to, you know, lapses in process, lapses in oversight. Uh, compliance divisions in banks have become these absolute monsters of divisions. And that's where a lot of the hiring activity has been over the course of the last several years, simply because it's not just about having, you know, the a very smart deal maker who goes out there and brings all the deals on books and makes that margin of whatever three or four percent on the balance sheet for example it's about making sure that as he goes about doing that that he's not skirting around the rules and that he's not likely to blow a hole in the bank three four five years down the line because that's the other thing is a lot of these problems don't manifest as soon as you're putting the deal on they come through three, four, five years down the line. And quite often, given the churn factor you've seen in investment banks, sometimes the people that were there are no longer there to, to actually pick up the visas. 
Yeah, and if you've worked in banking, you will sooner or later attend some kind of compliance presentation or strategy day, and they will put up a slide, and it will have the share prices of a whole lot of banks with pretty logos, and the story will go something like, these little piggies went to market, and these ones did okay. But in this one, there was an oak on the trading floor who stuffed up everything, and no one got a bonus that year, and that's why we're important. And obviously, I'm being facetious, but it's true. <laughs> that is why market risk divisions exist, compliance exists, and not least of all, because it's also a very, very regulated space. So the Reserve Bank gets involved. Um, Basel rules are international set of rules that talk to how you have to price essentially the capital in a bank. It forces you to hold capital against certain types of assets. That, for example, is why a lot of private equity activities are basically nowhere to be found in banks anymore. They're not sitting on banking balance sheets because the capital you have to hold against private equity is very expensive. So it's just the most fascinating industry. And, and just personally, just because I like banking and I loved my time in it, it's just cool to see that people are talking about it again. And, you know, it'll be, the world needs big tech. Of course it does. But the world also needs banking. I, I wrote about how Coinbase isn't the shovel, you know, that kind of analogy of, of in a gold rush, sell shovels. Banks really do sell the shovel. And it doesn't matter what industry is running at any point in time. There will be investment bankers right there ready to take a fee to your point, Jamie Dimon, Bitcoin, this new super league that's fallen over now in Europe. Uh, JP Morgan was there to try and underwrite that thing. Everything in the world needs money, and there's a banker who is always happy to uh, to put the to put the signature on the piece of paper. Yeah, there's also another saying. So instead of the the selling shovels, uh, it's also that the bank is is a business that will give you an umbrella when the sun is shining and take it away from you when it's raining. You know, I think the most interesting thing for me goes, you know, cognizant of time is is also the fact that as banks get regulated. Uh, the activities that would have sat in the banks spun off into new industries. And you could make the same argument, for example, in that a lot of the old proprietary trading desks that existed within banks, those people left the banks and went and started up a whole new generation of hedge funds. You know, you could argue that, you know, a lot of the people left the banks and set up the brokers that are now offering zero commission trades and the democratization of finance. Those are all industries that are spun out of the banks. Uh, earlier on in this discussion, we were speaking about how, for example, discovery is going from an insurer into the bank space, but it's not the first time that's happened because remember that Standard Bank and the tie-up with Liberty is one that's been around for, for a very, very long time. So I always like to say you, you, you judge the economic cycle by who's building the biggest, shiniest buildings in the main business district of that area. And right now, it's law firms, which tells me that it's compliance and legal, <laughs> which is, 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 is the current leg to, to stand on. But banks, once upon a time, used to have the shiniest, biggest buildings, and they're still standing. So I think in a nutshell, I still quite like them in a portfolio. Uh, I think, yes, they will go through cycles, so you don't necessarily go and buy this thing right at the top. There will be divergences. If you're more active, you go with a long, short strategy, you can play this very effectively within that specific sector. But if you just like to buy and hold stuff, for me, they still look like decent businesses that you want to hold through the cycle. I'm happy to hold them. Yeah, and as a closing point from me, something I find really interesting, and I'm sure it's the case globally, but it's certainly the case in South Africa, is you know you get a whole lot of listed companies that do a lot of M&A, and sometimes you have banking type people in those in those businesses in senior leadership roles, and inevitably they have a better idea of what they are doing in terms of pricing risk and managing the balance sheet properly and doing the right stuff. And then you have a lot of corporates who don't necessarily have banking type people in the business. They are being advised by bankers. And those bankers are typically telling them that this deal is a fantastic idea and they should go off and do it. 
And, you know, certainly not going to mention any specifics around any of this, but what I will say is a great example that's playing out right now is Ascendus, which is uh, run currently by Mark Sardi, who is an ex-investment banker. And the Ascendus shareholders are only too lucky to have a guy like that there who understands debt structuring and what is going on around that business. If you had an operational person in that role right now, I think uh, I think Ascendus would have already gone to the wolves. So, you know, it all comes down to having the right people in the right seats. Uh, Mo, hopefully you and I are the right people in the right seats and that the listeners of Magic Markets enjoyed this show. I think that really is all we have time for for episode 22. Any closing thoughts from you? No, I think it's uh, been a great show. Again, maybe a last point is because banking is very similar and I just want to emphasize this wherever you are. It's also a nice one to look at the geographical differences. And that's why right now, I think South African banks on a relative basis are probably priced a little bit rich relative to some of the other global opportunities that are out there. I'm not saying you'd go out and buy anything right now, but I do think there are opportunities. But bear in mind that even globally, you're probably going to find some nicer opportunities outside relative to inside, just given where prices are right now. And provided that the banks do their job properly, it should be a business that we shouldn't see massive cracks developing in barring another global financial crisis. But let's touch wood, that doesn't happen now. Thanks, Mo. And for our listeners who are really bored, if you go back to 2009 and you look on Google Maps and you see a shady character with hair walking around the streets of Santon, there's an outside chance that that is Mo Knows himself. Mo, thank you for another great show. And I look forward as ever to doing this with you next week. Thanks, Ghost. And to our listeners, thanks. You guys make the show. Remember, give us a great rating. Write us some great reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. We really appreciate it. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.